You know, most people would tell you that they want to have a good life. But opinions vary on just what that means. What is a good life? Some people would measure a good life physically. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, said, Happiness is a good bank account, a good cook, and a good digestion. If you have money, food, and health, you're living the good life. Or as someone else put it, it's a hot tub, a back rub, and a drink at the pub. And you've got it made. You're living the good life. Other people would say, well, it's not measured physically, it's measured materially. If you've got a mansion, a Mercedes, and a mink, you're living the good life. You're doing good if you've got lots of goods. But you know, God says something altogether different. God says the good life is not measured by the physical. The good life is not measured by the material. God says the good life is measured by the spiritual. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. And so contrary to popular opinion, goodness doesn't come by looking good. Goodness doesn't come by feeling good. Goodness doesn't come by owning goods. Goodness comes by being in right relation to God. And this morning, I simply want to say four things about the good life. I want to talk about the pattern, the possibility, the practice, and the power. First of all, the pattern of goodness. Now, we have seen throughout this series on the fruit of the Spirit that the pattern for every one of these characteristics is God. And it's no different with this one. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The pattern of goodness is God. God's work is good. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. God's work is good. God's word is good. Psalm 119, 39 says, Thine ordinances are good. Behold, I long for thy precepts. God's ways are good. James 1.17 says, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God's will is good. Paul said in Romans 12.2 that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. God's work is good. God's word is good. God's ways are good. God's will is good. So if we're going to talk about good, we're going to have to talk about God, because there is no good without God. In fact, our English word good comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means God. When you say goodbye, you are really saying God be with you. When you say have a good day, you're really saying have a God day. When your mom says to you be good, she's really saying Be like God. And that's fitting because he is the pattern for goodness. Second, I want you to see the possibility of goodness. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and addressed him as good teacher. And Jesus responded this way. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus said, 
that God has exclusive rights to the term good. Now, most psychologists today will tell us that man is basically good. He's just having a few problems because he needs a little bit more education or he needs a little bit better environment. But the Bible tells us otherwise. Romans 3.12 says, There is none who does good. There is not even one. Man is not basically good. Man is basically bad. And unfortunately, most religious people today believe that God is going to let them into heaven because they have been good. But verses like Isaiah 64, 6 shoot down that theory. There it says, all our good deeds are like filthy rags. The very best things we do are filthy rags to God. And that word filthy rags is literally minstrel cloth. The best things we can do is like a used tampon to God. Someone has said that if you take the word good and remove the word God, you're left with a big fat zero. Because without God, there is no good. Now that raises the question. If no one is good except God alone, then how can we have the possibility of doing good? And the answer is found in the fact that God has made for us a new covenant. And we read about that new covenant in passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and Hebrews chapter 8. The old covenant was the law. In the old covenant, God said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. God said, do this and don't do that. God said, essentially, be good. And we all fell short. We all missed the mark. And God looked around and said, there is none who does good. There is not even one. And so God made a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And God no longer says, be good. God says, I will make you good. And if you read the conditions of that covenant, they say this, I will forgive all their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. See, God's standard is perfection and he hasn't changed his standard. He does not grade on a curve, but he does grade on a cross. And when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, He forgives us all our sins. But He also says something else in that covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart. And that new heart that He gives us gives us a new capacity to do good. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12, 35. He said, The good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. You see, goodness is not a matter of the head. Goodness is a matter of the heart. And God has provided for that by giving you a new heart out of which comes good things. If you are saved, if you are born again, God has taken you from being someone who had no possibility for being good to being someone who has every possibility of being good. Paul spelled it out this way in Ephesians 2.10. He said, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
In Titus 2.14, Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us so that we would be a people zealous for good deeds. And that's why Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is not something that man can manufacture on his own. Goodness is something that God produces in us by giving us a new heart and placing His Spirit inside of us. You see, He's the one that makes it all possible. And then thirdly, I want us to see the practice of goodness. How do I get goodness out of my heart and into my actions? Now, I think that's a frustration we all deal with. We say, I don't want to be materialistic, but we spend a lot of money. We say, I want to spend more time with my kids, but we don't make that time. We say, I want to have quality time with my wife, but weeks go by without those kind of meaningful conversations. I think we all have a frustration gap between good intentions and good actions. Even Paul lived with that frustration gap. He said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do. Now how do you begin to close that frustration gap? You know, there's a word used often in Scripture that I think kind of captures this idea. It's the word integrity. Integrity comes from the word integrate. And if you want a simple definition for integrity, integrity is when I integrate my heart values into my daily actions. How do you integrate your heart values into your daily actions? How do you develop integrity? How do you practice goodness? Let me suggest four ways. Number one, speak honestly. Speak honestly. We all say honesty is the best policy, but some of us have canceled that policy. If we are going to practice goodness, we're going to have to begin by speaking honestly. George Burns said the most important thing about acting is honesty. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Well, let me tell you something. You can't fake honesty. Proverbs 10.9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. You cannot fake honesty, and that's especially true with the people you are close to. In one survey, 91% of Americans admitted that they lie regularly. And I thought, well, how do you trust a survey like that? Ninety-one percent of Americans admitted they lie regularly. Now, why is that? Why do we lie? One of the primary motives for lying, for not having honesty, is a fear for what will happen if we tell the truth. You know, honesty is a tremendous risk in relationships. If I tell my parents the truth, 
they might kick me out of the house. If I tell my wife the truth, she might get mad. If I tell my boss the truth, he might fire me. I might get bumped out of my political party if I don't put a spin on this. Oftentimes in our attempt to keep the peace, we lie. Everything's fine. I'm doing great. No problems. I'm not upset. I didn't do it. We oftentimes sacrifice honesty because we're afraid to take the risk of telling the truth. But let me tell you something. There's a greater risk when you don't tell the truth because you lose integrity. And integrity is one of the most important commodities that you have. I love what Solomon said in Proverbs 20, verse 7. He said, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. The Living Bible paraphrases it this way. It is a wonderful heritage to have an honest father. You know, most dads are working hard to leave their sons a heritage of accomplishments so that they can say, wow, what a great dad we had. But you know something? Your kids don't really care about your accomplishments. They're not going to care if you were the CEO of the company. They're not going to care if you were the president of the Rotary Club. They're not going to care about all those plaques on your wall. The greatest heritage that you can give to them is to pass on a model of honesty. But having said that, let me qualify honesty. Honesty doesn't simply mean speaking your mind. You know, some people don't speak the truth. They launch it like scud missiles. They're like Clint Eastwood truth-tellers. They pull out their 44 Magnum and they say, make my day. Well, Paul told us in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to be speaking the truth in love. Our honesty, even when the truth hurts, should be lovingly designed to build up rather than to tear down. And so the first way we're to practice goodness is to speak honestly. Second way is to confess regularly. You see, if we're going to see the fruit of goodness grow in our lives, we're going to have to weed the garden. And you weed the garden by confessing your sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I'm going to start doing good, I first have to acknowledge and confess what I'm doing that is not good. And for some of us, that may be nothing. We're not doing what we should be doing. But I need to confess that because when I become sensitive to my sin, then I become alert to those good things that I should be doing. But let me remind you, confession is not just vertical, it's horizontal. James 5.16 says you are to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You say, well, why do we have to tell each other? Isn't it enough to just tell God? Why do I have to confess to God and confess to you? Well, the answer is because that restores relationships. If I've sinned against you, I've got to confess to you as well as God. 
If I come home and my daughter Lindsay comes up to me and says, Dad, you want to go out and play pitch and catch? And I say, no, I can't, I'm busy. And I go over and start reading the newspaper. And about a half hour later, the Lord nudges me. Or more typically, my wife nudges the side of my head and says, that was wrong. Well, see, it's not enough to just confess that to God. I have to go to her and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You see, that restores relationships. And that principle, I think, is especially necessary in the marriage relationship. Ogden Nash put it into the form of a poem. He said, keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. When you're wrong, admit it. And when you're right... Shut up. You know, this week my wife Tempa came to me and said, it would be nice if you didn't make that pile of socks on the floor about five steps from the clothes hamper. And you would think, since I'm studying about how to confess when you're wrong, that I would have said, yes, dear. But you know what my first thought was? My first thought was, this woman who never screws a cap on anything. I mean, my wife, my wife just sticks the cap on the toothpaste. She sets the cap on the medicine. She, I have reached into the refrigerator door and picked up the jar of grape jelly. And because it's sticky... It stays there till I get it out over the floor, and then it drops. Because she never screws a lid on anything. So I'm thinking, this woman, who never screws a lid on anything, has the audacity to confront me about my pile. Now, why did I react that way? Well, because we don't like to confess. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. We get defensive. We all will admit, I have a long way to go in life. But when someone close shows us just how far we have to go and just exactly what direction we need to go, we don't like that. But if we're going to practice goodness, we have to confess regularly. Third, We need to live consistently. Consistently. Goodness is not something you turn on and off. It must be something that permeates every area of your life because integrity requires consistency. Let me highlight three areas where consistency is vital. Number one is public versus private image. You can't be one way in public and another way at home. You have to develop consistency because the opposite of consistency is hypocrisy. Why is it that we seem so determined to build up our public image oftentimes by letting our families down? Sometimes we think it's so important to impress the boss or to impress our friends and we forget how important our own family is. 
you know, the last two weeks we've had pastors announce that they've been called to other places, and I thought, well, today you probably think it's going to be me. I'm staying. But as they were announcing those things and sharing those things, I was thinking to myself this week, you know, there are a lot of people who could do my job of preaching and pastoring here and probably do a better job than I do. But there's only one person who can be a dad to my kids. And there's only one person who can be a husband to Tempa, and that's me. And that's the most important job that I have. Who do you really want to be admired by? We had a group of leaders from a church in Des Moines come down last weekend. They wanted to see some things about our church and learn some things. And we had them over to our house on Friday night. And Temple was sitting there bragging about me. And I want to tell you something. That means more to me than anything anybody else could say. Because she knows me, sock pile and all. I want her respect. I want to be admired by her and by my kids. And to do that, you have to have consistency in your public versus private life. Second area where consistency is vital is words versus actions. I hope you never use the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. Because words alone will never change people. They have to be accompanied by actions. That's what John was saying in 1 John 3, 18, when he said, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. There must be consistency between my walk and my talk. And that is especially true, fathers, in the area of discipline with your kids. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When you see a baseball player get upset at an umpire, he is typically upset because that umpire has not been consistent. If he calls the same pitch a strike throughout the game, that's okay. And children need to see consistency between what you say you're going to do and what you do. That's integrity. You have to be consistent in your words and your actions. And then a third way that consistency is vital is in social versus secret life. You can't be one way in front of people and another way when you're alone. Robert Redford was walking through a hotel lobby one day and a woman saw him and followed him to the elevator and there she asked excitedly, are you the real Robert Redford? And as the doors of the elevator were closing, he replied, only when I'm alone. Are you the real you in both your social life and your secret life? Someone has said, reputation is who other people think you are. Character is who you really are. And character is determined by what you do when no one else is around. Integrity is shaped in those moments when no one else sees you. I want to confess to you today that I have a a secret passion, and that is ice cream. 
It's not really a secret, in fact. It's pretty open. And, and, and some of you have seen me at Schnucks. I come to Schnucks quite often, and I go back to the ice cream freezer, and I see what's on sale, and I get something in each hand, and I, and I go home and I eat it. Now, I was at Schnucks a couple months ago, and as I was coming in the door, two managers had caught a fella outside because he had a fifth of vodka in his pants. So they took him back inside and they escorted him toward the office. And so I went to the ice cream freezer and I picked out my ice cream and I came back and I got in line to check out. As I'm standing in line to check out, these same two managers run across the front of the store shouting, everybody out of the store, everybody out of the store. So we all go out of the store and we're standing on the parking lot and somebody points and says, there's a guy with a gun. So I look over and I see this same fellow I'd seen as I came in and he's waving a handgun and he's running over toward Long John Silver's and the police are pulling up and they're chasing him and it's, it's a really cool scene. But I'm standing out in the parking lot and I've got a box of Dove bars in one hand and I've got a pint of Ben and Jerry's wavy gravy in the other hand. And I'm actually closer to my truck than I am the cash register. And if I just wanted to quietly leave, who would have known? Nobody except God. You see, if we're going to practice goodness, we have to live consistently in our public life, and our private life, and our words, and our actions, and our social life in times of secret. And then there's a fourth way to practice goodness, and that is commit openly. Don't wait until you have a decision to make to make up your mind. Commit yourself at a time. On your wedding day, when the pastor says, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? I hope you don't say, uh, why don't you give me a little time on that? See, you have to make that decision ahead of time. And if you're going to practice goodness, you're going to have to decide in advance. And I suggest that you make that commitment openly. In Isaiah 45, 19, God says, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. God did not make his promises to you in secret. He publicly proclaims his commitments. And God expects you to publicly express your commitments to him as well. You say, well, I'm afraid I'll let somebody down if I make a commitment. Well, just remember this. It's easier to make up excuses than it is to make up your mind. It's easier to absolve yourself than it is to resolve yourself. You see, that's why it's important for us to make a commitment to someone because that someone can then hold me accountable to that commitment. You say, well, if I make a commitment and I fall short, I'll feel embarrassed. That's exactly why you ought to make a commitment. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, why do I have to confess with my mouth? God already knows my heart. God knows my heart better than I do. 
But God tells me to confess with my mouth because he knows it's a powerful thing to voice your commitment to him. Let me suggest to you a commitment that you could voice today. It's a commitment that David made a long time ago and he recorded it publicly. In Psalm 101-2, he said, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Let me suggest that that's a commitment that every one of us ought to make and we ought to make it openly before people. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. If you plan to reduce the frustration gap between your intentions and your actions, you need to make that kind of commitment. And then finally, the fourth thing about the good life is the power of goodness. What is the power of goodness? Well, Jesus described it in Matthew 5.16. He said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Did you know that the good things that you do has the power to draw other people to Christ? Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and physicist and philosopher, said, Next to the might of God, the serene, silent beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world. Whether you realize it or not, people are looking at you all the time, and they're asking themselves the question, do I want to surrender my life to Jesus if being a Christian means I'll be like Him? You see, your life is either a stumbling block or a stepping stone to other people. When they came out with the Susan B. Anthony dollar, they expected it to be real popular with the public. It only lasted three years. And so they went around and asked people, why didn't you like the Susan B. Anthony dollar? And the most common response was this. People said, we don't want a dollar that looks like a quarter. We don't want a dollar that looks like a quarter. A lot of Christians are that way. You see, your life may be the only Bible that your friends read. What kind of message are you sending? If you are living the good life, that has the power of drawing them to Christ. That's what St. Francis had in mind when he said, go and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words.